0: Into the New Testament this morning. Last time we talked about the intertestamental period, the time between Malachi and Matthew as we finished up looking at um, the minor prophets. Excited to be in the Gospels this morning. This morning we're looking at the Gospel according to Matthew, Uh, Why would we say, I I saw this last night actually, I was doing some final reading until my brain completely checked out and um, I was looking at a um, New Testament survey textbook and the professor that wrote the book asked the question, why would we call this the gospel according to Matthew instead of the gospel of Matthew? Can anybody have, anybody have an idea of why that little wording would be significant? Exactly, because it is not about Matthew. It is not the gospel. It's not the good news of Matthew. It's the good news according to Matthew. So it's Matthew's version, Matthew's rendition um, as the Holy Spirit gave it to him. And I refer to this one as a royal biography. So we're going to look over the next four lessons, Lord willing, at each of the four gospels. And we're not going to do a lot of comparing gospel with gospel, but rather looking specifically to the message of each gospel like we did with the minor prophets. Why did this prophet say what he said? Um, Why did this... Um, writer, New Testament writer, save what he said. How did God use his specific gifts, his specific um, history? Um, How did God use the specific writers? So we're going to look at this royal biography of Christ this morning. Um, Last lesson, we talked about the transition from the Old Testament, um, the last prophet being Malachi, to the New Testament, and whereas the first prophet of the New Testament, <clears throat> we refer to as being John the Baptist. He was that last great prophet of the old dispensation. He's the one who introduced Messiah. It was his father, Zacharias, that we see the Lord showing up to first in the New Testament, speaking to telling him of the birth of his son and the fact that Messiah was arriving. But the first of the writers, as we see them laid out in the Gospels, this would not have been the first um, New Testament book to have been written down, but it is the first in our canon of Scripture. It's the first placed in the New Testament for a number of reasons, which we'll talk about this morning, one of which is the fact it is such a wonderful link between the Old Testament and the New Testament partly because of the detail that Matthew gives to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We're going to look at it this morning, but he is consistently saying that it might be fulfilled. And this happened next, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, and he would quote Isaiah or Jeremiah or he um, would quote one of the Psalms. And so there was a consistent quoting of the Old Testament. Matthew, some, some Bible um, teachers refer to Matthew as the link between the Old and the New Testament because the amount of prophecy which Matthew um, quotes. Of course, we talked about last time the transition between the old language of uh, Hebrew, languages of Hebrew and Aramaic, which the Old Testament was written in. And then the Greek, which the New Testament is written in, and you can get into arguments over whether Matthew was originally written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek or not. Um, Research I've done recently, um, there are some that refer to Matthew as being written originally in Hebrew, but from what I've been able to see, there was only one of the early church fathers, and he was like second or third generation church father that even referred to Matthew as being in Hebrew. God has preserved it for us in Greek. Um, And we have no reason to believe that Matthew would not have been versed in Greek being a tax collector himself, a man who worked for the Roman government. Um, I just really cannot get into the camp of Matthew was originally in Hebrew. It may have been, but God didn't preserve it for us in Hebrew. He preserved it for us in Greek. So I'm going to have to go to that camp because that's what God has given us. Um, But it is important to remember that we have a Jew writing. And so you've got to keep that in mind, even though we may look at Greek um, here. You've also got to be thinking as you study any of the Gospels. These are Jewish people we're talking about. So if you try to think in an Old Testament and Hebrew type of mindset, you're going to have a very a more clear understanding of the Gospels. So each of the four Gospels were written from a different perspective, and we're going to visit these three points with each of the Gospels. Number one, a different perspective. Why would there be four different Gospels? Because each writer, the Holy Spirit is going to use each writer to present a different perspective. So you have a different person writing. So things are going to come out a little different. Um, As far as their presentation, if you think about it, you have a group of, well, let's just say 12 men in a room. An event happens, um, say a crime is committed in the room, and um, afterwards the police show up and they interview each of the 12 men. The 12 men are placed at different places around the room. Each has a different emotional bend toward what's been happening. Um, There can be some, um, whereas the story may come out the same from 12 people, even the order of events may be mixed up a little bit. Why? Because if you have my wife and I to recall a story to you, When my wife recalls the story, I'll be sitting there going, no, 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 that's not what happened. No, 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 that's not what, no, no, no. Because my wife does not put those things in their exact order. She says, this is what happens. And some of the things may be out of order, but in the way her mind works, as long as she gets them all there. Me... I was raised by an organizer. My mother is an organizer. Things had to be in certain orders. So when I'm telling a story, I'm like, no, this happened first, and then this happened, and then this happened. So in my mind, there is an orderly progression of events. So I'll ask Laura sometimes, why aren't you? You didn't tell the truth on that. To me, it's not the truth. When we first got married, I would think, Laura's really stretching this truth. And it wasn't that she was stretching the truth. Her perspective was different than mine. She did not put them in an orderly progression. As you look at the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke, that was part of his purpose, was to set things in order. So if you want to know what are the sequence of events in the life of Christ, don't go to Matthew. He did not put them in that order go to Luke. He was specifically, purposely putting things in order so we would know the timeline of the life of Christ. Matthew had a different purpose, and he even grouped things differently. He grouped things topically, not chronologically. So, different perspective is going to affect the presentation of The message, you read the accounts of the resurrection. Some people would say, oh, well, this one is different than that one. So one of them is not true, or maybe the whole thing is false. And so they'll try to cast doubts upon the accounts of the resurrection. Well, Matthew's a Jew. He's talking to Jews. So how does he begin? Well, at the end of the last day of the week, he, he starts you off in Jewish thinking as far as time goes. Somebody else may be writing to a Gentile world. They're going to present the times to the Gentile world. And so the perspective can make the story appear in our eyes to be a little different. But each one is, um, the, the, all the pieces fit together if we take the time to study them out. Secondly, number one, each of the four Gospels was written for a different perspective, from a different perspective. Number two, for a different perspective. People. So, whereas all of these um, are there for all of us, they were written to someone specific, especially the Gospel of Matthew here. And number three, for a different purpose. So, if we understand the purpose of the Gospel, um, and uh, to find the purpose, I challenge you, get a pencil out, You can do this with any book of the Bible, get a pencil out and read through it multiple times and start noting what gets talked about the most, start underlining it. And then when you flip through, you start realizing, oh wait, there's a theme here. This guy mentioned this word over 50 times. I think this might be key to understanding this book of the Bible. And it's very clearly the case with Matthew, Um, Mark, I can't wait to teach on Mark, Um, really um, a very busy gospel, we could say. Um, but far from a different perspective, for a different people, and then number three, for a different purpose. And so those are the three things we're going to look at with each of these gospels, but they fit together to present a complete picture of Christ. So why would there be four of them? Because we need a bigger picture, and as the gospel of John ended, um, if all the things that were written about, all the things he did were to be written, even the world itself could not contain the books. And so um, having four books is nothing compared to what Jesus actually did. So uh, this first one, Matthew, a royal biography. Let's jump straight into this. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, we have a, the introduction of the book here. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we're going to look at each one of these parts as we go along here, but let's just look at the first part of the statement. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The book, the Biblos Genesis, as it would be rendered in Greek. The Biblos, which is book of, gene- uh, let's see, how, how generation here, the Greek word is actually Genesis. This is the book of origins, the book of beginnings. That's what the book of Genesis is, right? It tells us the origin of mankind. It tells us where we came from. Um, it tells us the beginning of mankind's history. Well, the Gospel of Matthew is going to give us the the story of Christ. It's going to present to us his biography, you could say. Um, So it's the book, the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the first part of this, perspective. See if I can get this to respond to me here. Could you just advance that slide for me, Jonathan? because the clicker is not working. There we go. Thank you. So let's talk about perspective for a minute. Where this is coming from. This is written by Matthew. Um, I have seen no arguments to that, um, case that this was Matthew the Apostle, who was originally called Levi. Some say the other um, writers just simply refer to him as Levi. What is interesting, it appears to me as I've studied it, and I've read this from others recently as well, that the change of Matthew's name came when he became a disciple of Jesus Christ. From that point on, he was called Matthew. So perhaps Jesus gave him the name Matthew. Perhaps he himself changed his name. That was not unheard of um, throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, think about Paul. Paul's name was changed um, when he became a believer um, from Saul to Paul. So it wouldn't be unheard of that he would receive that name. The name Matthew means gift of God. He was obviously a Jew, and I say obviously, yet that is something that is very key in understanding how he's writing here in his gospel. He was a Jew. He was a publican, a tax collector. So this is a man who worked for the Roman government. He would have been a bookkeeper. He would have been probably an an accurate bookkeeper as far as their reputation goes, apparently it was common that publicans, that tax collectors, um, there were no, well, let me back up. There were no laws dictating how much taxes a tax collector could collect. So, you know, if it is, say, 10%, I'm just making up that number of your income that you're going to be taxed upon, he could say 15%. 20%, 25%, and he keeps the excess of the taxes. That's the reason why you had uh, Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus got saved, what did he say? I'm going to give back uh, all that I've stolen. Is that what it was? Four times he said what I've stolen. He understood understood about um, percentages. This is how much I've been taking over, and now I'm going to go back and I'm going to repay four times what I have taken from others. So as soon as Zacchaeus gets saved, he knows what he's been doing is wrong. Um, But because of this kind of behavior, tax collectors were not well um, respected, were not well liked by Jews or even by people from other countries because they're going to be collecting tolls, they're going to be collecting um, taxes for the roman government think about it this way if um, a foreign country were to come in take over america and all of a sudden we had members of our church that started going and collecting taxes for this government the invading government would we feel very it would take a lot of christ-like love to be able to be gracious to our brothers and sisters in christ who start collecting taxes from us to give to an enemy government. So if you think about it, that's who this Matthew, this Levi was. He sat at the receipt of customs. He sat at the table. He collected the taxes. He was not, would not have been a well-liked, well-loved man. It would have been scandalous when Jesus, after Jesus says, follow me, and he gets out, he holds a big feast at his house, How would he have money to hold a big feast at his house? He's a tax collector. That's how. He holds a big feast at his house and people get upset. Jesus is eating with these publicans and sinners. Why would it be scandalous? Because he's at a trader's house. He's at a tax collector's house. How dare Jesus go to the tax collector's house? Yet Jesus chose this disciple to follow him. Jesus chose this disciple to write the gospel. So to tell the good news, in the eyes of Christ, he was the perfect instrument to use to give us this gospel. This gospel was extremely key in the early church. They say that it was the most widely read, widely circulated of the four gospels. And then once the last gospel, John's gospel, was completed, um, they were apparently very quickly, all four of them bound together as one unit Um, accepting these as the only four true Gospels of Jesus Christ. But it was widely circulated because of its audience that it was geared toward, which was the Jews. And um, so it's read a lot in the early church. Why would this... So let me back up, sorry. So this would be significant for Matthew to be chosen, a tax collector, a publican, but God is going to use his specific gifts, his specific background, to be able to accurately and powerfully tell this message. And I bring attention to that because have it really helps sometimes if we start paying attention to the author, who's writing. It helps us sometimes understand the terminology used. It's like the prophet Amos understanding he's a farmer, And then you go read the whole prophet again, understanding he's a farmer, and you start seeing all these, um, not archeological, you start hearing all of these agricultural statements in his prophecies. You could look at Bible writers, scripture writers, as like an artist chooses paint. An artist isn't generally, if he's going to paint a landscape, he is not going to pick out the color red and paint the whole landscape with one color. Not usually. He's usually going to have, even if he does red, he's going to have different shades, right? He's going to create shades, he's going to choose different shades, but if he's going to create an accurate landscape, he's going to have to have greens, and he's going to have blues, and he's going to have browns. There are going to be different colors he's going to use to accurately paint a picture. And that's what the Holy Spirit did to give us the scriptures. He took different men, different backgrounds, different personalities, different education, even people who are linguists looking at... um, the la- original languages I was reading this week, they were uh, a man who was talking about the difference in the Greek style used by he and John and by Luke. And he was talking about how that Matthew was good quality Greek. Um, Luke was exquisite Greek, though. Well, why? Luke was a doctor. Why was Luke so concerned about putting things in a specific order? He was a doctor. A doctor starts to examine a patient. They're not just going to ask about the pain if they're a good doctor. They're going to say, when did you start having this pain? They need a timeline of events to diagnose what the problem is. Dr. Luke says, oh, well, we're going to sit down and we're, it is necessary, and the Holy Spirit's telling him this, but he's using his own personality, his own gifts, his own medical training, all of these things. For Luke to sit down and say, we need to put these things in order. And in the case of Matthew here, he's using a man who um, has seen the Jewish people, has seen and received the ridicule, has received the hate. um, But he's a man who is Jewish and who is a perfect person to be able to present um, the story, the account of Jesus Christ. So as we read the book of Matthew, I challenge you, remember there's a Jew writing this. So think, um, I know for you and I, it can be hard to think like a Jew, but think from an Old Testament perspective. If all you knew was the Old Testament, would the, Ma- would the gospel of Matthew help convince you that Jesus was Messiah? So if you read the Gospel of Matthew, and I challenge you to do that this week, sit down and read the Gospel of Matthew and try to put aside everything you know about Jesus and you know about the New Testament. And just think, if all I had was the law and the Psalms and the prophets, would this be able to convince me that Jesus was Messiah? And read it from that perspective. It can be very powerful. Why? Because it was written from that perspective. It was also written... If we look at the people it was written to, it was written to the Jewish people. Origen, the church father Origen said that from what he had received, he wrote in the late 100s, and he said that from what he had received from tradition, the gospel of Matthew or the gospel according to Matthew was prepared for the converts from Judaism. So he's writing Jews to convince Jews that Jesus is Messiah. That's the reason why I say it can be really helpful to Read the Gospel of Matthew thinking, all I know is Old Testament. How would this convince me? And that's one reason why the Gospel of Matthew was so widely circulated in the um, first centuries of the church, first century of the church, because um, the first converts were Jews. And they're wanting to understand what was Jesus' teaching concerning the law. What was his attitude toward the law of God? How did he feel about the prophets? Um, How did he feel about tradition? Um, We need to know these things. We need to understand these things. And so these Jewish people want to find out. These new converts to Christianity who are by birth Jews, they want to know the truth of Jesus. And so the Gospel of Matthew is going to be very important for the first generations of disciples because they're Jews. Secondly, if we... um, if you look in the introduction again, verse number one, the book of the, geneal- of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does he go back to Abraham? Luke goes all the way to Adam. Why does Matthew in his genealogy and his record of the generations of Jesus Christ, why does he go to Abraham? Because he's trying to convince Jewish people of who the Messiah is. So, he takes him back to Abraham. They are the sons of Abraham. They are very proud of this fact. Matthew is a son of Abraham. And so he takes Jesus back to two things, the son of David, which we'll talk about in a minute, but the son of Abraham, presenting him as a Jewish descendant of Abraham. He's writing to people, as I've already stated, who are familiar with the Hebrew prophets. So you're going to see the term that it might be fulfilled, um, the comments about it being written. Um, some, uh, let's see, more than 60 times in the Gospel of Matthew, he's going to reference the Old Testament. Let's look at a few of these. Matthew 1, 22. Now, all this was done when the angel came and spoke to Joseph in a dream, telling him that um, his his espoused wife was going to have a child. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. Chapter 2 and verse number 15, we read, And um, and was there, this is their flight to Egypt, when they went to Egypt to hide Jesus Uh, baby Jesus from the wrath of Herod um, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying out of Egypt have I called my son chapter two and verse 17 then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy or Jeremiah the prophet saying in Ramah was there a voice heard lamentation and weeping and great mourning Rachel weeping for her children would not be comforted Because they are not. Chapter 3 and verse 3. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Chapter 4 and verse 14. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, or Isaiah the prophet, saying. um, Chapter 4 and verse number 14 that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali." This is talking about Jesus um, going and settling in. Uh, sorry, uh, moving to Capernaum uh, chapter 8 and verse number 17. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Talking about his miracles. Skip over to chapter 12 and verse 17. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles." Chapter 27 and verse number 9. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value. 27 and verse uh, 35. Um, at his crucifixion, and they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. So I challenge you to go through, read through the gospel of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew this week, and underline every time you see those words. So you can see all of those times that the Old Testament is being showed to be fulfilled. Why is he doing this? He's writing for a Jewish audience. He wants them to understand this is Messiah of the Old Testament. I heard a political commentator last week, a conservative American political commentator. Um, I've wondered before whether he was Jewish or whether he was a Christian because of his quoting of Scripture. I have noticed he always quotes Old Testament scripture. And I heard him speak last week about why he is not a Christian. I unfollowed him when he got to the point of biblical revelation ends at Malachi. The New Testament is not the inspired word of God. And I thought well, then you don't have anything I'm really that interested in. I may agree with you politically, but I'm not going to, I only have so much time in this life, and I'm not going to spend it listening to a man who rejects Jesus as Messiah. Very purposefully, willfully has chosen to reject Jesus as Messiah. The man would do well to study good the gospel according to Matthew, because it was written specifically, it has benefit to all of us, but it was written very specifically for Jews. Um, it was also written not only people who were familiar with the Old Testament prophets; it's people who are going to be familiar with the law. Look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter five, and verse number twenty-one. <clears throat> Ye have heard. When he says this in the Sermon on the Mount, what's he going to be quoting? Well, he takes them back to the law. He have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Well, who was it of old time that said it? Well, they would say Moses said it, but Moses was quoting God. But look what he says. uh, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And he goes on. Um, so Jesus takes it deeper. He takes them from just the law and the very and physical crime, he takes it to the heart. He says, Let's deal with the heart. And I mean, that's true with anything. Um, and it's especially true with parenting. If we deal with the heart of issues, if we deal with attitudes, I, I try to encourage new parents. Deal with attitudes. Don't wait until there's actions. If your kid has a bad attitude, deal with it. Because if you deal with attitudes, you're less likely to have bad actions. Um, Anyway, so Jesus takes it to the heart of the matter over and over. Verse 27, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Verse 31, it hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife. Verse 33, again, ye have heard that hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. Verse 38, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, And a tooth for a tooth. So, why would Jesus spend time quoting the law? Why would Matthew take such detail to explain and give us Jesus' quotations of the law? He's writing to Jewish people and he wants them to understand Jesus' perspective on the law. Why would he record Jesus talking about he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it? Why is this important? He has a Jewish audience who understands the law of God. He's going to talk about tradition at times, whereas some of the other pro, um, other gospel writers may give some explanation about the Jewish tradition. Matthew's just going to insinuate it because his audience is going to know about the tradition. So, number one, we talked about perspective. Number two, we talked about the people. It's written to number three. Each of these Gospels is for a different purpose. The purpose of Matthew is very easy to see. He's trying to present Jesus not only as the Jewish Messiah, but as the King. He is rightful King. He is the King that we Jews have been looking for. And so how does he do that? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So in his first sentence, he not only points out, as we've already said, that he was a son of Abraham, but he says very specifically he is a son of David. He is taking them to the line of the true kingship of Israel, the line of David Well then what does he do What's the next thing he does after his one introductory statement he is a descendant of David now he is going to take us um, now he's going to take us to the genealogy of Christ so he lays out the genealogy why does he lay out the genealogy in such a way because he is presenting his, kingship. He is rightful heir, something that I usually forget about. If if this genealogy is laying out Jesus as the rightful heir to the throne, that meant his stepdad was the rightful heir to the throne. Joseph may have been a carpenter, but he could have been king. This puts Joseph in line for the kingship. That's the reason why, after the genealogy, Who's spoken to next? Does he say, okay, now the angel came to Mary? No, because he's presenting the kingship of Christ. So he goes to rightful heir to the throne. He said Joseph was deep in sleep and the angel, he was troubled. The angel of the Lord comes to him in the night. Why is Joseph dealt with next? He's telling the Jewish people, this is your king. So he states he's the son of David. He lays out the genealogy and then Um, The third thing he does is he addresses the heir to the throne. He addresses Joseph. And um, also look at the end of the genealogy. He comes to the end of this. um, There are numerous things we could talk about in the genealogy, and we just don't have time to. Um, One is to note the women that are listed here, Gentile women as well as Jewish women, which gives a hint that this Messiah is not just for the Jewish people, but he's for the whole world. Um, but then it says, uh, verse sixteen, chapter one, sixteen, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Notice it doesn't say, and Joseph begat Jesus. Why? Because he didn't. And since it leaves out that little detail, and it just says he was the one that was born of Mary. Then he gives the explanation of the conception of Christ. How is this given? It's given um, by the the dream that he has and um, Jesus receiving uh, sorry uh, Joseph receiving the explanation of his espoused wife being found with child. so, Um, this is all laying out the fact that he's king. What happens in chapter two? The next thing we see is wise men showing up. Why on earth is Matthew the only one who gives this story? Because he's trying to prove that Jesus is king. So he recounts this story. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born? king of the Jews. If you spend a lot of time worrying about who the wise men were or whether we call them kings or wise men, you're going to miss the whole reason why they came. Why did they come? They came to find the king of the Jews. And so here these wise men come from the east asking, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And as Matthew recounts the story, he takes great care to show how that Herod called in the scribes, the wise, uh, the Jewish wise men, and says, would you look up in the scriptures, where is the king? Where is Messiah supposed to be born? And so they go and they research the scriptures. Why does Matthew give that detail? Because Matthew's trying to show he is the biblical king, the rightful king, the rightful heir, to the throne. Throughout the gospel of Matthew, we have the establishment of Christ's kingdom on earth. But Matthew's only phase one. Phase one is the spiritual kingdom. Matthew five times refers to it as the kingdom of God, but mostly he refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. The word kingdom is used, I counted it last night, 54 times. I'd never taken time to count it. And then last night I'm like, well, how many times does it show up? So I went through it last night. Fifty-four times the word kingdom is used in this gospel. Five of the times it's kingdom of God. All the rest, he uses the term kingdom of heaven. It is not an earthly kingdom. It is a heavenly kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. He is talking about the establishment of his church here on earth, but Jesus also addresses, as you read through um, the gospel of Matthew, you see he talks about future events. And we know that one day by comparing scripture with scripture, we know that one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set up his literal physical kingdom here on this earth. But the gospel of Matthew is only phase one. He's trying to show this is the king. This is his kingdom. You've misunderstood. Right now, he's not here to set up a physical kingdom, but rather a spiritual kingdom. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, I challenge you again, read the Gospel of Matthew this week. When you get to the Sermon on the Mount, think about this fact that you have Jewish people saturated in the law and in the prophets, and they are people who are completely saturated in tradition. And now they're listening to this man, this what they think is just a man teach to them. He's laying out the moral code, or rather you could say the law of his kingdom. It's going to be found in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a turn the other cheek, not get even. It's a different type of mentality that Jesus is laying out in his kingdom. At his crucifixion in Matthew chapter 27, he's mocked as king and then declared on the top of the cross, king of the Jews, And then, of course, if we go to his great commission, as we're having to conclude here, Matthew chapter 28. I challenge you, when you take your pencil and you underline all of the times the Old Testament is quoted, also underline all the time kingdom is mentioned here. But the great commission is the expansion of his kingdom. Matthew 28 and verse number 18, he says... And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This word power is showing the fact he is king. He has authority. And he's giving this authority to his disciples as he leaves. So what does he give us authority to do? He says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. The first here is um, it's to evangelize. We're to go out and teach Christ, present Christ. Number two, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And number three, discipleship, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And then what did he say? Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So what is the expansion of his kingdom? The expansion of his kingdom is the carrying of the gospel around the world. In chapter 10, when he sent his disciples out on, you could say, on their mission trip, on their train, first training runs, where they're going out by themselves, he sends them out by twos, and he says, I, I have all power. I send you out with this power. He sent them out with his authority. To do what? They were going to cast out devils. They were, they were going to be things that they were going to do as they went out for Jesus. But when we get to the Great Commission, he doesn't pass on to us in these final words, okay, in my kingdom, I want you all to go out and be casting out devils, no snakes. What Matthew records here is very simple. He said, you take the gospel, you baptize, you disciple. What's discipling? Discipleship is teaching them to observe what Jesus said to do. Teaching them to live in the kingdom. And so, as we read the Gospel of Matthew, I challenge all of you to do that this week. Um, realize, as we get to the end, that that kingdom command is given to all of us to evangelize, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, I hope this helps you in your scripture reading and in your personal study. It's just a small glimpse into the Gospel of Matthew, but it was an exciting. I really enjoyed studying this out. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you did come to be king. And Lord, we thank you that we are a part of your spiritual kingdom here on earth. And Lord, we look forward to spending time with you in your heavenly kingdom um, as we um, leave this earth and enter into um, your presence. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be faithful servants, that we'd be faithful ambassadors here on earth, Lord, presenting your message and um, disciple making disciples, Lord, and spreading the gospel. Lord, thank you for this brother Matthew and um, the way he so accurately um, gave this account of your life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>